host Ross Payton here for the uh, Role Playing Public Radio, and here we have uh, Sean uh, Jaffe or uh, Jaffe. 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 All right. Uh, one of the principal writers for Blood Dim Tides and a uh, game designer. Um, we got in touch with uh, Sean when he commented on one of our episodes about Blood Dim Tides, which Tom, the co-host, uh, mentioned as one of his favorite games, and. So we'll be talking about this, uh, White Wolf, uh, Blood Dim Tides, and uh, some of the other game design, storytelling, and all that uh, good stuff. Um, yeah. So first, I, the the one thing that I, I'm really curious about that I really want to talk about first is the okay. title, uh, because I'm a big, you know, Yates fan and the Second Coming, of course, so uh, who came up with that? We actually got the title from... Um from White Wolf, like they they came to us and said, "This is what it's going to be called." Okay. Um, nobody, it was it was just out of the gate. They were like, "We need to do this book about the ocean, and it's going to be called this." I, I don't really remember who it was that actually came up with it. Okay. Um, you uh, say they came to us. Uh, who was us in this uh, case? Oh man, now you're going to get me in trouble. Um, <laughs> well, let me see. Uh, there was myself, um, Adam Tinsworth, um, at the time, um, Jay Schneiderman was also working on the project. I don't, uh, um, I don't remember who else. I should probably get a copy of it and look up names. I feel bad. It's so long ago. Okay, that's fine. Well, I mean, uh, they went, they came to, uh, you as individual freelancers, or were you working together with some people, or was everything um, sort of scattered about? Yeah, it was. Uh, we were all individual freelancers, and he gathered a group of us. Okay. Uh, I think, uh, um, if I remember right, uh, it was. I, I had sent them something about uh, the Werewolf Players Guide, which I had gotten an advanced copy of because I was doing reviews for Inquest at the time. Uh, okay. Back when Inquest was doing role playing game reviews, I don't know if they still do that anymore. I think uh, they've become sure, just. I stopped reading them a while ago myself. Uh, <laughs> Harsh. Yes. Well, uh, I, yeah. I feel bad because I did too, obviously. But, um, Anyways, but I had gotten an advanced copy of the Player's Guide for Werewolf and had a bunch of stuff that I had sort of sent them. Um, I had sent them a uh, a proposal for um, a book on Mokole because I had gotten advanced word that they were looking for books on the various changing breeds. Right. Um, and they said, you know, we, we're looking for some stuff on the Rokea, the were sharks. Um, and we're doing this book on the oceans, and I was like, oh, man, that sounds great. So I wound up on board, and at the time I was, you know, in college, and everybody was playing Vampire and Werewolf, and it was, you know, yeah, just the incredibly game. cool game in the late 90s, so I was, I was pretty psyched. Okay. Um, now, in your emails we talked about leading up to this, uh, I mentioned you worked on The Lurkers, The Rogue Wall, the sort of Were Whales, I don't know. I know that's not exactly what they are, but uh, right. uh, the Merfolk and the Chulavaria, the, the sort of Kraken Deep Ones, as well as Project Deepwater. Yeah, the Calorvia. The what? The Calorvia. Calorvia, okay. People keep asking me how to pronounce that. <laughs> I got it from some Italian comic book. I don't remember. It was like I mispronounced something in the comic book. Oh, really? And, okay. And uh, it's actually, it just sounded it disgusting like and a, evil. It's a very Lovecraftian word, and of course... Um, so, 
you mentioned uh, 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 what out of those uh, uh, projects or you know little creatures did you really enjoy writing the most, or what? Could t- tell us a little bit about writing for each of those uh, uh, entries in the book. Okay. Um, well, the first thing was, I guess the the idea for the roar call came from when I first heard that I was going to be working on this. Mm-hmm. I went to my friends and said, you know. The whole world of darkness thing is very, very clearly defined, but you have no idea what's going on in the water. And what kind of cool stuff would you want to do? And I got, you know, a lot of the standard sort of, I want to be a were-shark, and I want to be a fish vampire, or whatever the hell people came up with. Uh, And a lot of it was, especially from girls, tended to be like, oh, is there some sort of dolphin thing? And so I went back to them and said, uh, there seems to be an interest in, in some sort of a dolphin thing. Um, and they said, well, we can't do that, but maybe we could do something with whales and dolphins. And I was just brainstorming around on it with, uh, with Jay Schneiderman. Um, and, and we came up with the idea that perhaps underwater, instead of, you know, the sort of cairns and sacred places in the world of darkness tend to be there in area. It's, right. it's something like a changeling freehold or, or a cairn for right, whales. Right, right. But no, no. Yeah, but it's it's just a place. We we were thinking, you know, whales are so huge. Maybe these are sort of these, they're living cairns. Maybe you know, since the the area works differently, they right. they they need these cairns. So they had just done the player's guide, which had the idea of the kami, which were um, essentially guy and fomori, um, you know, these these spirits that that carry positive energy. And I figured we'd just sort of extrapolate on that. And that's how those guys came around. Um, the one I think I had the most fun with was the, the merfolk. Okay. Um, and uh, I had a couple of near misses with uh, Rokea, the Warsharks again, and then the, um, uh, the, the idea of a, of a Kappa vampire bloodline, which is kind of an interesting story. Um, because that sort of coincided with, uh, with some very weird changes that were happening to Vampire the Masquerade at the time. Um, when, when I went to them with the idea, you know, we, a, a group of us had been talking about, I don't remember exactly who was involved. Uh, I, I think Tinsworth got to hear about the Kappa, but I don't know how much he contributed. Schneiderman was in on it. Um, we, we were discussing, you know, the idea that vampires in Vampire and the Masquerade, one of the big things that they had sort of put forth in the first book was that vampires slowly but surely lose their humanity. And in the Sabbat, they said they can even replace their humanity with a different set of ideals. Right, the past. Right. And then, slowly but surely, over time, that erodes, and they go crazy. And, and, and they really, they had this great concept, and then they just never did anything with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so these ideas of these guys going completely insane when they had dropped to zero humanity or zero path, it's... It's mentioned, but they never tell you what happens to them. You never hear about them. You'd think that they'd be fairly common. Right. Uh, so we had this idea that maybe all of them sort of, when they go crazy, sort of retreat under the waves in this, this weird sort of Lovecraftian call of Cthulhu thing. Like, like there's some great horror calling them home under the ocean. And that's where all of them have gone, and that's why you haven't heard from them anymore. And then we started extrapolating, you know, this because they're vampires. They don't need breeze. They could have have an entire society down there. These crazy vampires that are just worshiping something, and and, and very little is known about it. And, you know, it's a, a lot that we could do with it. Um, sorry, my dog is sneezing. 
Uh, and uh, then we, you know, we had this idea for the Kappa as being, you know, these things occasionally come up and sort of grab people or, or pull them down. But you know, we wanted to have something where there, these were, were really alien, weird things. Right. And uh, so we went back to, uh, to White Wolf with this idea. And we said, okay, this is the one place where we can do a new bloodline and it makes a lot of sense. You've given us these, you know, the vampires that can sing, and you've given us vampires that turn into cats, and, you know, all of these weird little sort of bloodlines that didn't make a lot of sense. Um, and we're like, but, you know, a vampire that is completely adapted to life underwater, there could be hundreds of thousands of them, and we'd never know that they existed. Right. Uh, and it seems like a really good place to put these things. Um, so we had, we had this whole proposal. And we go to the, uh, the line developer, and he goes, well, no, we just kind of want the the ocean vampires to be kind of like the Gangrel, and La Sombra can be pirates, but we don't want anything really crazy, because we're planning on doing this thing called Kindred of the East. And these are going to be like a whole new bunch of vampires that are entirely different from what you know, and they all live in in China, and, and in Asia, and Japan, and and." They're very strange and weird and different from the vampires that we have here. And so we all kind of went back and we're like, okay, that's odd. And it was, it was Jay who was, you know, talking to me on the phone. He's like, so we just concluded that discussion and realized that uh, vampires at the bottom of the Marineris Trench are pretty much exactly like what you'd find in New York or Boston, except they have fins. Vampires in Hong Kong, however, are completely alien and different to adapt to their new environment. And that was when we realized that maybe we should just stay away from that one entirely. <laughs> All right. Um, fair enough. That's uh, certainly a good decision. Um, what about the... Uh, um, so did a White Wolf... You mentioned also that a, a White Wolf, uh, you know, you had conference calls to them. And, yes. Uh, you had some funny stories to talk about. What happened? I mean, what other things did you get from White Wolf that was sort of, you know made it interesting to write this the big one was the the what we could and could not deal with as far as as the vampires went you know because we had this huge elaborate plan for them right. um uh if you go back into the book there's really very little there for mage at all and i don't know what happened with that um uh jay schneiderman wrote this this fantastic chapter with uh a whole uh, thing where he he said that the uh, the nefandi the, the sort of demon worm touched mages would they go underwater and you know they obviously had this very sort of Cthulhu faction uh, you know very into the great old ones and these were their cultists these were their mages and and, and it fit and then it just nothing happened with that um, and I don't know why that didn't get in there um, Adam Tinsworth did his part on Wraith and that. I think got the best uh, critical reaction. Yeah, uh, yeah and it was it was really amazing. Like I, I love the idea that actually that's not true. I hated the idea that wraiths couldn't get underwater at first, mm-hmm. and then I played a game of wraith in the water and I realized it was it was fantastic and I loved it after that. Um, but his whole thing with you know ghost ships, it, you know, it, it was fantastic. He got the whole the the, the creepy factor of uh, uh, you know being lost at sea forever and, 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 you know, the thematics of Wraith just, 
he nailed it. He, he, he got that absolutely perfect. I love the artwork uh, for the race section. There's one photo, or one illustration in particular of this uh, on page uh, 53 of, uh, it looks like this 19th century captain, you know, pointing his cutlass out, and then there's a couple pirates firing flintlock weapons, and then there's a cruise missile being fired. You know, yeah. Also, and I think it really captures sort of the if I remember the end of the Wraith storyline, where they decided to blow up uh, uh, Enoch, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I always am reminded of that picture. I always figured that that was the, the missile that did the trick, you know, and caused the third maelstrom and ended the greatest role-playing game in the history. Yeah, I've always, um, yeah, I've, I've heard that several times. Was that your favorite game when you were uh, playing, you know, uh, World of Darkness? To date, that is my favorite game ever written. Um I think, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to put on my pretentious gamer games as art hat and say that it was just too far ahead of its time. It was poorly marketed, but the ideas and, and the concepts and the gameplay in it were just so revolutionary and so groundbreaking that it was almost too far ahead of itself. I mean, you know, it got to this point where people just were, oh, I don't want to play somebody who's already dead. And, well, in that case, you've already missed the point. Right. Um, I, I've run Wraith a couple times, and and some of the best games I've ever run have been Wraith: The Oblivion. But it's so hard to find people who who are willing to even try it because it's you know it, it seems so incredibly bleak. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and also, just from the game design perspective, uh, I've found things from Wraith that I'm using today. Like, uh, there's a role playing game I'm playing right now called Monsters and Other Childish Things where you have a kid and his pet monster, and his pet monster is real and can eat people and all this other stuff. And what I've done is done something similar to the shadow mechanic, where each player has a kid and a monster, but someone else role plays the monster. So That's awesome. Has, yeah. That's and, great. And it works really well. Uh, because oh, that's, a, that's a great idea. Yeah. And it's from Wraith, and uh, <laughs> that's, that's uh, where I very blatantly stole the idea from. But... Um, you're also talking, you know, you mentioned earlier the mage. Uh, the, the one mage thing in Blood Dim Tides is obviously, the major thing is Project Deepwater. And mm-hmm. it's a great idea for a campaign, or at least a couple scenarios, of this underwater high-tech, you know, super base. And, you know, monsters from the deep waters are trying to get in, destroy it. Um, what, and you, you mentioned you wrote it, so talk a little bit about that. Um... A lot of people didn't like Project Deepwater. They they didn't like the idea that you know Pentex and um, and the technocracy would exist in the same world, much less collaborate. Um, and I kind of accepted it as a given that Pentex and the technocracy exist in the same world. I I never liked the idea that all of these games had to be so separate. Uh, it, it seemed to me sort of counterintuitive that you know if you've got a world where vampires and werewolves are at war for hundreds of thousands of years, they wouldn't learn a little bit about each other. Right. You know, but I, you're eventually going to bounce into other things that are like this. So, uh, uh, in terms of Project Deepwater, you've got two organizations that would naturally be interested in the bottom of the ocean. You've got the Technocracy and the Earth Frontier Division of the Void Engineers, uh, and you've got Pentex because that's something that they can screw up. Um, which was, uh, near as I could tell, pretty much on their corporate masthead. That right. was their job. Right. Just yeah. go places and wreck things. And, right. uh, 
So it, it seemed to me like, you know, Pentex is, is often depicted as this sort of cartoony um, Captain Planet villain organization. You know, they're just like, we're going to go out there and pollute stuff. Uh, what's the profit margin on that? No, we're polluting stuff. Why are we, we, we you're buying pollution from other countries. Yes. Pollution. And it just doesn't make any sense. I, I, so I wanted to bring Pentex back to this sort of insidious corporate organization that has an agenda, but is still much more sort of concerned with the bottom line and much more that they have more of a front than that. Right. So they would go to the government um, and say, you know, we, we're interested in oil and whatever that we can get you know, at the bottom of the ocean. We're trying to find, um, you know, new life forms and, and, and possible medical uses. And, and, you know, if Cloverfield happens, so be it. Uh, and then they would, of course, get paired up with the technocracy who was interested in the same thing. Uh, and the technocracy is actually kind of in that equation, the good guys, because whereas they're this sort of bizarre fascist uh, thought police, uh, they at least aren't trying to bring the gay, old ones back to Boston or New York or what have you. Um, but, I mean, there's a, there's a perfectly good reason for this collaboration, and they would both have the kind of funding to make it happen. Um, so... We started, uh, you know, going back and forth on it, and, and you know, it's it worked because it sort of brought mages into the, the storyline, which they otherwise just didn't seem to fit into Blood Den Ties at all. Uh, and the Pentex thing obviously worked well with uh, with Werewolf. Um, I, I actually ran a, a deep water game about a year and a half ago, which was a lot of fun. It wound up uh, there was this um, Rokea Were Shark, which if you ever need comedy in your game, I don't care if you're playing Dungeons and Dragons, I don't care if you're playing Call of Cthulhu, I don't care if you're playing World of Darkness, uh, you name it. Just throw in a wear shark and things are going to get stupid, but fun. Um, because they're just going to try and eat stuff. And uh, So there was this wear shark that, that had essentially been um, sort of captured and was, was being pacified by the... Uh, by the locals um, and by the scientists who got busted out by some of the werewolves that were in the, the that were in the group, um, and the girl playing her came up with one of the greatest were shark adages, I've, I've, just one of the best lines I've, I've ever heard, which was, uh, um, "The enemy of my enemy is not food," <laughs> and I just want that on a T-shirt. I think that's fantastic. That's a good um, that, that, and, and that's about the best you're going to get from Warrior Shark, I think, too. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That, that, that sort of captain. That's, that's the closest you're going to get to, to friendship from a Warrior right. Shark, is recognition that you might be more useful as something other than a snack. Right, right, right. That's, uh, got the yeah. lower brain function. Uh, the reptilian mind just captures that perfectly. Yeah. Um, now, you mentioned uh, a little earlier about how people didn't like to have the game overlapping Pentex and the technocracy and that actually that, that strikes me as sort of unusual because the old world of darkness at least in my opinion had a lot of that especially you know later on uh, they got more into it because it got more and more difficult to explain why it couldn't happen right uh, um, you have this world where you've got and, and, and and you've got these five major societies all of which are secretive all of which have these agendas, but 
it's it's sort of like if you've got a very small house um, and you've got five people playing hide-and-go-seek, eventually two of them are going to find the same hiding place. Right. Uh, so it got harder and harder to say that despite the fact that, oh, I don't know, for example, um, the Octana and the, uh, the, the Tremere, and, or, or better yet, better example, uh, the, the followers of Set, the children of Osiris, the, um, the um, Silent Striders, uh, the Hemka Sob, and uh, what was the, the Ishu, all from Egypt, never run into each other. Right. Egypt isn't that big, and it's entirely flat. These guys all had to know each other's names. Right. And and there was plenty of examples like that where things would just they have to cross. So it it was insane to say that at no point, even though they're all crazy, the Marauders and the Malkavians would never meet. So they had to kind of concede to these things crossing, especially when they just overpopulated the world to the point where, towards the end, it almost became difficult to find a regular human. Yeah, that, that was sort of the, the, the joke that I, I always had with the world, the world of darkness, the rarest species, the rarest of all types. World of darkness, normal, the mundane. Um, right, yeah. Um, so, what, what did White Wolf, or what did you, sort of, your impression of, uh, in terms of guiding your writing, uh, did you get in terms of crossovers, and, you know, you've also mentioned how White Wolf would say, you can do this, but you can't, you know, say, touch the vampires. Uh, or alter things. Don't touch the vampire. Yeah. Um, how else uh, did this sort of crossover, I guess, conventions or whatever guidelines, whatever you want to call them, uh, affect your writing or the uh, the work in the Blood and Tides? Well, you know? outside of the vampire thing, they gave us a fair amount of uh, they gave us a fair amount of leeway. I mean, we we would just sort of send in proposals. They say this this works, this doesn't. Um, in terms of crossover, there was. There's enough room in the uh, in the ocean, obviously, that that you could get away with things not really necessarily bumping into each other. But you know, on the other hand, you, you don't have a lot of other things for them to run into. It's not like in human society, you know, you could have two vampires living on the same block and they never know about it because they're constantly hiding. Um, there's nothing else in the ocean, so eventually the Rokea and the Merfolk are going to meet up. Uh, and we had to sort of explain away that a little bit you know we had this this sort of rough understanding that um you know if you're underwater and you're pretty and you meet somebody underwater who turns into a shark it's probably a good idea to stay the hell away from them but they're not necessarily around that sort of thing true enough um you also talked about uh, uh in your emails the research you had to put in to write uh, blood and tides uh going to the smithsonian i think and uh you know, aquariums, things like that. Uh, could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, actually, the Smithsonian thing was weird. Uh, I I was there uh, on something else. I was in Washington for, for something else, and I just happened to be near the Smithsonian. They, they had a uh, they had a huge um, a huge exhibit uh, in the Museum of Natural History down there on giant squid, which at the time, you know, I saw these these posters for it, and I was like, "Well, <laughs> I just got this gig on on Blood and Tides. I have to go check that out." And um, so that was where I kind of got the idea of the Calorbia because they they had all this stuff on how you know no two giant squids that they found have ever been exactly alike, and they're really weird, weird animals. I mean, really weird. Um, 
and and this is of course ten years old. So anybody who's an expert on giant squid might be able to contradict me on this. But but there's uh, they're they're incredibly bizarre things. Uh, the the one that I saw that they you know started giving me ideas was that they 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 have some that didn't have suckers, but instead have little hooks like a cat's claw. And then there was one where it uh, it would go hunting because it had these two essentially like strobe flashers on its tentacles. They these bioluminescent flashers that it just you know hit you with this bright light you know uh, at half a mile down or whatever. So you, you know if, if you're a fish who's used to that sort of pressure and that sort of depth, you're instantly stunned by the light and it just eats you. And all of this crazy stuff that sort of reminded me of this sort of weird litany of stuff that they had in. Uh, in uh, um, the Fomori source book in Freakly, uh, which got me thinking, you know, maybe these things are, are related somehow um, because they just all seem to have these different weird powers almost. Um, strange thing was is that after I went through that, I want to just sort of on a lark going over to the uh, Library of Congress to see what they had on, on uh, mythology. And uh, I go into the room and there's there's a lady there and I was, you know what do you have on on mermaids and the instant i said it some guy comes in behind me and just drops off a stack as tall as i am of just stuff on mermaids she's like well we got that so it, it was kind of weird it was like i it was like i was definitely in the right place for that stuff plus i kind of you know i always found the whole underwater thing interesting anyway i mean you can't really be a geek and not get off on the idea of you know this whole bizarre world down there all the weird stuff that lives there. Yeah, um, obviously, uh, again, Lovecraft comes to mind. Um, are you a big Lovecraft fan? I am. Um, I'm not. I'm not as big a fan as my wife, uh, but I'm definitely into it. And and I saw the potential there, especially in the, the you know uh, when we were doing a, an aquatic themed book in a horror based game. You really can't avoid it. It has to come up. Yeah. Um, uh, so we decided to go as strongly in that direction as they let us. Oh, really? Did they? Did you actually have it a little stronger before they toned it down, or did they? Well, they, they you know they mentioned, and, and obviously you know everybody was on the same page on this, or was you know it was pretty clear we we're going to have to sort of get into this Dagon Cthulhu thing. It was it was it was unavoidable. Um, but they said you know well this isn't ours, so we can't use these names. But you can certainly allude to some huge tentacled awful thing that's coming to wreck everybody's day uh and in fact it would almost be foolish not to so we tried to stay more towards alluding to these things than than out and out saying them i mean we could use dagon because dagon's a mythological right entity it's not it's not you know part of the well it is part of the Cthulhu mythos but it didn't originate there but we couldn't say like shubnagarath is coming or anything like that okay um you also mentioned you had some funny stories uh, about the, the process of writing uh, Blood to Tides. Uh, do you have anything you'd like to share? Uh, well, I think the main thing was finding out that uh, that um, that the people in charge of White Wolf thought that somehow Hong Kong was much more alien than, um, say, the bottom of the Pacific. Um, but uh, for the most part, I, it was it was pretty straightforward. I wasn't that funny i <laughs> i feel bad now like i've sort of misrepresented it it was a laugh riot there were fish um the 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 weird thing was was just it was sort of a turning point for white wolf and 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 um 
I like to think that maybe I had some small part in their jumping the shark in terms of just overpopulating the hell out of their world. Um, and, and nobody actually called them on the idea that, you know, we're going to put in a whole other type of vampire that lives over here for no real reason. Um, <clears throat> that wasn't fair. I shouldn't say jumping the shark. Just, you know, I'm not a funny guy. That was a terrible pun. Now, I'm officially not funny on your podcast, so I'm dragging you down with me, and I apologize. Oh, yeah. Well, we've been not <laughs> funny for long enough, so I'd be continuing that tradition. Um, well, uh, uh, that's true. It, it's sort of interesting to me that this was sort of a, uh, you know, a uh, theoretically a, a, a source book for all the world of darkness, and it's sort of unusual. Almost all their books were tied into one specific you know, line or another. They've done a couple. They've done uh, yeah, World they did a few. and things like that. Um, I, I think they were trying to get into a little bit more of an integration uh, in in the later games. I gotcha. Uh, what they had done was they had created this world, you know, and they, they had originally tried to sort of create five worlds, and it inadvertently had created one. And I think that the, the appeal of the old world of darkness was that it was possible, and I guess to some degree it's true in the new one, but Anyway, the old one, which I know a lot more about, was that if you were one of these creatures, so if you were, you know, a Tremere Ponifex or, or even something, you know, like a Bonar, and you knew anything about anything, you could take a regular person and they would see that, uh, you know, they'd see that vampires are real. And, and the implicit idea to the gamer was that, oh, vampires are real, and also there are werewolves and what have you. Right. I think the idea was that, you know, to the average citizen of the world of darkness, you just found out that everything was real simultaneously. It's all real, and they all hate each other almost as much as they hate you. <laughs> so you're screwed. If you're a regular person, you just found out that, um, you know, everything from unicorns to terminators to werewolves to, you know, cans of fruit with eyes, anything you could think of was horrific, and it was coming for your children. Uh, and, and then, you know, there was all this sort of political, like, spider web of, of interconnectedness to it. But that wasn't really relevant when it was trying to chew off your head. True, true. Um, and again, it, it's all, uh, you know, finding out you're at the bottom of the food chain. That, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then the arguments between the various monsters uh, higher above you as to exactly who's on top of that food chain. Right, no right, yeah. Out. Uh, it depends on, you know, who's exploiting the rules book uh, right. <laughs> to the right extent. Um, what kind of response did Blood Tim Tides get? Uh, in terms of, did, you know, what kind of feedback did you get back after it was published? Um, um, it was sort of, uh, you know, it was positive. Uh, you know, you can't say 100%. I mean, I've gotten trashed on plenty of work. Uh I'm not gonna lie. It's, I'll, I'll say like I've done some some real crap and I've done some some really good stuff. Uh, probably more real crap. But uh, the thing with Blood Dim Tides was was yeah it was it was very positive. People really liked uh, the, uh, the the world and the thematics. Um, there was uh, there was a bit more mixed with regard to the Corvia and uh, the uh, the Merfolk. Um, some people loved them. Some people hated them. Um, and, uh, you know, most of the reviews that I saw were, were, were generally positive. Um, most of the people didn't like Project Deepwater. They thought that it was, you know, too much mixing or something. Um, 
and and mind you, this was all almost ten years ago, so I, I don't remember it that well. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was fairly positive. Uh, um, you know, and, and I was sharing the blame with with other people. Right, right. Uh, right. People really loved uh, the wraith stuff, and 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 rightly so. I mean, Tinsworth is is a genius, so he deserved all the uh, the good props he got. I didn't see anybody had a problem with uh, the wraith stuff. Yeah. Um, but most of my stuff, there was stuff that people liked and stuff that people hated. Okay. Um, which, you, which you mentioned. Um, now, you've also talked about some of the other games you've worked on. Uh, one of the things I'm interested in is the uh, ZG game, uh, the action figure board game, which was uh, the lead designer was Mark uh, Rain Hagen, the, yep. the, of course, created Vampire the Masquerade. Uh, mm-hmm. could, how, how did you get into that? Um, well, that was obviously two years after. That was 2001, I mm-hmm. think, when that was released, and Blood and Tides was 1999. Um, so how did you get into that, and what was that like, designing for ZG? Uh, ZG was a lot of fun. I, I came in later on ZG, and, and it was more of a, a sort of bouncing ideas off of Mark directly kind of thing. Um, ZG was, was sort of the end result of a lot of weird stuff. After Blood Moon Tides and a couple of other things for White Wolf, one of which I got credit for and actually didn't wasn't my work. Um, and I, I will come out and say that the, the stuff that I did on Werewolf uh, Dark Ages was almost entirely written by Hala Latiri, uh, and she deserves the credit for it. Um, <clears throat> she's probably going to get mad at me for saying that, too. Uh, but after that, uh, I, you know, I talked to a bunch of people who were sort of in the industry and said, you know, you're, you're freelancing, but you should get into writing your own game. Everybody, you know, sort of works on their own. So, uh, I wound up, um, getting involved in writing my own game, which was this huge, awful, bloated thing, very self-indulgent, um, about, you know, sort of, uh, the end of the world and, um, messiahs and antichrists. Uh, and, uh, somewhere along the line, I ran into this guy who, um, was just this insane, vaguely mob connected, um, finances guy in Nutley, New Jersey. Right. Uh, and through this weird sort of connection of people, a friend of the family introduced him to me and he heard that I was working on a game. He assumed, now this is mind you, like around 1999. Right. He assumed that this meant that I was working on a video game and proceeded to help me raise way, way too much capital for a role-playing game, like way more than I could ever, ever use. Um, and never once really understood that it was a book. So every time I came back to him, you know, I was, okay, here's the illustrations and here's all the stuff. That's great. Where's, where's my video game? Well, I, I told you, and on the contract it said several times over, this is not a video game, this is a role-playing game. That's good, that's good. So is this on a disc? No, no, it's, it's just a book. Oh, so the disc comes in the book. No, it's just a book. And at no point over the course of about two and a half years did this man ever understand what it was that I was trying to do. Um, but it meant that I got to go and pretend like I was a game designer. So I got to go to all these conventions with uh, uh, my brother and with uh, Gareth Michael Skarka, who was uh, – we, we hired him to be our operations manager. He did uh, Hong Kong Action Theater and Underworld, and uh, he's 
uh, he's head of Adamant Entertainment now. He's he's uh, he does some really good stuff. Um, yeah, he just got the uh, China Mable. Uh, yeah, that's right. He does that. Uh, and so we worked with him for a while, and uh, he sort of <laughs> barely tolerated us and our incompetence. Um, but one of the things that happened was that uh, I think it was Origins. We wound up sort of uh, in a booth next to Reinhagen as he was working on this ZG thing. Um, and we got along. And it was weird for me because as a guy who sort of was convinced to become a game designer by playing the old world of darkness, this was, you know, this, this was, to me, it was almost like meeting George Lucas. Like, this, right. this guy was the guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And... It's weird because everybody had told me that he was this, you know, hugely egotistical, very, you know, sort of self-absorbed kind of game designer celebrity that was very prevalent toward the, towards the end of the 90s, early 2000s. But in my experience, he came off as a really kind of nice guy. I mean, he's sort of very, uh, very cool guy, you know, very much sort of had to be on the cutting edge of whatever was going on. Um, but, but a nice guy and easy to get along with. Certainly not, you know, certainly not, um, unpleasant. I mean, granted this was after his vampire, of the masquerade thing, so I can't say for sure, but right. so we got along pretty well and he was working on ZG and we eventually just started sort of collaborating on different ideas for this, this weird new world that he was trying to create. Uh, and I think that part of it was that he was just trying to get really far away from vampire. I mean, if Vampire was this sort of dark and gothic and brooding thing, ZG was bright lights and 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 flashing and and, and neon colors and, and noise and ecstasy and whatever else you could sort of cram in there. Right. Um. So they had just gotten the uh, the figures, and he you know he had all these ideas of doing uh, uh, a a role playing game and perhaps a video game and all of this other stuff that they wanted to do. And, you know, we were, we were working on a, on a role-playing game that would actually use the cards because it was sort of uh, a, a card-based thing. Right. Uh, and we were working on, uh, you know, different ways to use the action figures. Uh, one of the things that, that kept coming up was that, you know, he really wanted to tie, like if Vampire was tied into the goth culture, he really really, really wanted to get ZG involved with the raver culture, which was really, well, wasn't as big as it was in the 90s back then. Right. But, no, I remember the... You know, the early, you know, sort of turn of the millennium raver thing right. was, was really big, right. and he was trying to get in on that. Now, the thing is, is that it's not a big jump for a bunch of goths standing around a goth club to be doing the exact same thing, but pretending that they're vampires. I mean, because it's sort of what they're doing anyway. Right. Um... But to get a bunch of ravers to stop dancing and start playing with action figures was a much bigger leap. So there was obviously a, uh, a hurdle. Um, and then, you know, uh, when 9-11 happened, like, he just lost all of his distribution. And, you know, it was already, you know, he was having trouble with it. Um, uh, and it was just not worth pursuing it at that point financially, as far as I could tell. And that sort of ended that. Um, which led me to have a... Uh, I have a porch which is still full of these action figures. And, oh, really? Yeah, it's still a fun game. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to play it. I, I think it was a great idea. Just it, you know, it was just wrong place, at the wrong time. I, right. You know, if 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 it had gone slightly differently, if it had come out a little bit later or a little bit earlier, it might have been another hero clicks. But you know, just because right. it certainly was playable, it was definitely fun and easy to do. It was just uh, you know, it was just bad luck. 
Right. Should have targeted the uh, anime fans. They would have been probably. Yeah, I think that would have been a better move. Um, uh, you know, and at the time, I mean, there was sort of a crossover between the, the anime and uh, um, and the raver thing, but not as you know, it wasn't wasn't enough. The loss of the distribution really was the, the big deal, though. I see. Um, and you so you, you little, talked a little bit about you know how getting these jobs, these, uh, you know, blood dentites and CG in particular, but um, and how you got started in general was sort of the world of darkness, the old world of darkness. Um, right. What was the first step into it? I mean, what, how did you you know how did you break into the elusive game design industry? Um, I started freelancing in, oh my god, like, 95. Mm-hmm. Um, was, again, it was my friend Jay Schneiderman. Uh, he wound up as the editor of Inquest Magazine somehow. Mm-hmm. And I ran into him at a con. He's like, you know, I'm the editor of Inquest Magazine. You should really write me a column. And I was like, ah, that's funny, Jay. Okay, whatever. <laughs> and I, I genuinely didn't believe him. I was just like, whatever, and then went around my con thing and you know, went off and did nerdy stuff and then ran into him again. He's like, where's my article? And I'm like, wait, you're serious? So I go out and I get a copy of Inquest from the dealer's room and holy crap, his name's right out on the mousehead. So I started doing stuff for him. Uh, you know, I did reviews for them and uh, I, I, I had a column or two in there was about, you know, how to role play with large groups or how to role play with music and things like that. Um, and then, you know, obviously Inquest was huge. They still are and they're, 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 Right, a gigantic uh, to be still doing a, 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 a paper magazine for gaming is, is a testament to their abilities um, and uh, they they went uh, you know and started doing more reviews so they wound up giving me most of the, the World of Darkness reviews stuff that they had and that was how I wound up in uh, in uh, working with White Wolf, um, and then from there I just sort of went to cons and met more people and worked on other stuff, but eventually wound up doing my own thing with Sinister, which, uh, as anybody on any gaming um, uh, talk forum will tell you, was a terrible, terrible mistake. But uh, I had fun while it lasted. Well, uh, do you want to go in a little more about uh, uh, Sinister or why it was a mistake? Or is that... <laughs> um, well, it was... Uh, you know, we were, we were, I, I, I haven't been involved in gaming for a while, so I don't know if this is still the case, but there's, there's definitely this sort of, um, love hate relationship between, uh, at the time, small game designers and, uh, the, uh, the forum boards that, that loved and hated them. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we went out to do Sinister, uh, my brother and I, my brother Josh and I put the company together like I told you, because we met this guy who was insane and had too much money because it was the late nineties. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we had this, this idea. It was my idea. He laid it out. He's, uh, you know, he's, he's really good with, with graphics and visuals. Uh, and I had this terrible idea for this, you know, overblown bombastic role-playing game about, you know, the second coming. Um, and, uh, we wound up starting to put this thing together, uh, and then uh, there was a group of small game designers in New York City at the time. There was ourselves. Um, Scarpa was just getting his thing started to do Underworld. Uh, 
the guys who did continue on working on their thing, um, and Aaron Rosenberg, um, who I cannot say enough good things about, was coming together uh, Asylum. Uh, he had already done one before. And then there were a couple of others that sort of came in and out, but basically the group of us um, would meet every so often and get together, you know, figured, uh, you know, we're, we're the game designers that are in the New York area, we should talk and, and get stuff together. Um, and then, you know, I wound up getting all of this venture capital from this madman in Nutley, so uh, uh, that was when I decided to just sort of hire on Gareth and take on his stuff as, as well as, as my own. Um, so we did Underworld, uh, and and that was a lot of fun, and that uh, that generally was well received. Um, we didn't really have much in the way of a backup plan or exit strategy, so we just sort of started working on the next one, right. which was the Last Exodus, which uh, uh, did really well when we released it, and then um, pretty much went directly into. Uh, uh, well, there was a, a billion things that went wrong with it. Uh, there was really nothing designed to follow up either game and that. You know, there was nothing. Uh, uh, there was there was no money at that point to create something else with. Um, basically, I am probably the worst businessman you're ever going to talk to. Uh, and that was when I realized I was a lot happier and a lot better off just sort of staying with freelance. And that's what I've done since then. Right. Okay. Um, so, what have you, I guess, learned about uh, game design and storytelling uh, through your work? I mean. Role-playing games, you know, it's it's obviously very different writing, you know, uh, an RPG scenario or work than uh, a linear piece of, you know, like a, a short story or novel or whatever else. Um, just from feedback from what you've written, what other people have commented on, and just all your experience, what have you learned? Um, in terms of gaming, I would say the biggest thing I've learned is that uh, flexibility is... Uh, for a writer is key. Uh, the best thing about being a game designer and going into the other stuff that I've done, um, and then one of the best things about just being involved in gaming in any way is that it's not a linear story. And if you're a player, if you're a GM, if you are a game designer, anybody at any level has to be prepared for things to change drastically. And that is crucial uh, to any writer who's going to be taking anything anywhere. Um, I've recently been working for various studios and, you know, I'll say, okay, here's the storyline and it's very linear and, you know, and then somebody will say something like, well, you know, George won't play this part unless he gets to wear a hat. And you have to be able to just sort of immediately, well, okay, he could get the hat from here. Um, and it's that, that level of flexibility I'm finding is, is, is incredibly valuable. Um, as things change, um, as, as the, the sort of medium of, of entertainment starts to change, it's becoming more interactive. Um, and so our incredibly sort of niche uh, market of, you know, of interactive entertainment is getting larger in, in ways that we really hadn't anticipated. I mean, the pen and paper game is is definitely not as strong as it used to be. Uh, I don't want to say it's on its way out, but it's definitely changing. Um, and these are, but these are valuable skills uh, that that anybody involved in gaming can take somewhere else. Um, and and learning how to deal with 
unexpected changes. You know, suddenly the players decide that they're going to join the bad guys, or suddenly the GM has thrown you a curve that, uh, you know, the NPC who's been helping you the whole time is actually a dragon. You know, all that sort of stuff. You can think on your feet and adapt um, and change the story, and, and, and it works. Uh, and I think that's the best thing uh, that I learned from, from game design and, and from writing in general. Um, also, it's, it's good to uh, sometimes uh, just take a look at everything you're doing and say, is this idiotic? I probably would have benefited a lot more from that, uh, doing that more often back then. Uh, but, uh, you know, again, I, I can't complain. Okay. Um... Before we go, I'd like to uh, just ask, uh, have you been playing or reading anything lately in terms of uh, related to gaming? Uh, not just RPGs, but video games, board games, card games, whatever else. Um, what has really caught your eye lately? Or what have you, what have, how have you been uh, keeping up with the uh, gaming, I guess? Uh, in terms of gaming, um, I've, I feel bad. I feel like like I'm the old guy now. You know, like I, I go into a game store and I... I I, I want to be excited about something. And I look around. I was never a big fan of D20. Right. Um, those guys are, are, are very good at what they do. Um, and so I'm not really into D20. I don't really care for the New World of Darkness. So I just kind of go straight for the used section. Right. Uh, I've been playing... Well, the last game I played was an Old World of Darkness game. Uh, I've been playing uh, things like Call of Cthulhu and Old Cyberpunk 2020. Can't go wrong with that. Yeah, it's 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 all still fun, um, but I, I would like to see something really new uh, that isn't, you know, that, that's something from out of nowhere. Right. Uh, the most role playing I've done, I have to say, in about a year has been on World of Warcraft, um, which is really kind of the future of everything. Mm. Uh, much as I hate to be that guy that's like, oh, the video game is better. Uh, it's it's amazing how much role-playing you can get out of it. Uh, a friend of mine convinced me to try it. He's like, no, no, you can role-play. There's role-playing servers. And that's why he's, that's how he sold me on it. You know, I was, I was really resistant to this. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, there's role-playing servers. I'm like, all right, I'll try out a role-playing server. Mm-hmm. And it's a game I can actually play on my Mac. Holy crap. Yeah. And it's existed. So, um, yeah, I've been playing a lot of that. Um, and, you know, just sort of doing, uh, like, short campaigns of other stuff. But mostly it's, it's old school. Uh, I really get excited about things that people have invented. Uh, I, I really like, you know, somebody comes to me and says, you know, this is something that I brewed up at home. This is something that I've just invented. Uh, I, I can get into that a lot. I, I like, uh, I like, you know, when people, because I, I remember reading, I don't remember who said it. There's this great line where, where, where some game designer said, you know, the industry is doomed as soon as the players realize that we're making all of this up. And, and it's true. I mean, you, you can just sort of make up a role-playing game, you know, and suddenly you just start off the game. Okay, all of you are sandwiches. Go. <laughs> Sandwich? What's my motivation? Um, be delicious. All right, I'm on it. You, you know, you can just sort of 
cobble stuff together. I mean, your your whole thing of the the you know the monsters and shadow guiding the kids. That's that's a prime example. I would totally be into that. I'd love to play that. Actually, uh, 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 I don't want to be just blatantly plugging, but uh, I actually wrote a supplement for uh, monsters and other childish things. If you look it up, I'll uh, email you the link after this interview. That'd be great. Uh, uh, yeah. I'll check it out. I found actually there is sort of a the new trend is uh, the indie game designer. Yeah, that's that's what I'm talking about. I really like that stuff. Yeah, uh, and the problem is they're not in game stores, but you can find them. They're readily available online. Yeah, you and, can get it online, and there's there's a lot of stuff that I've seen that that's been really fascinating. Just so, yeah. some incredibly new takes on things. You know, the 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 I think that the the best thing for um, for gaming is is it sort of goes online um mm-hmm. i remember talking to gareth about um you know where where everything was headed uh, and this was a long time ago but he was saying you know gaming is becoming a lot like jazz music where the the people who 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 consume it the players um and and the buyers are all sort of working on their own thing you know so there's nobody is is just a consumer Everybody's sort of coming up with their own thing, and, and, and I like that idea. I think that that's where, where it should sure. be. Going. Well, I mean, if you write your own scenario, if you run your own campaign, I mean, you're creating your own material for the players. Or that's true. Technically, but there's no reason to stop there. I mean, if you want to come up with your own system, you know, and right. or you know, house rules, which, you know, if you're if you've played Palladium, you pretty much have to do. And <laughs> I started with Palladium. Yeah, I think and everyone I did a ton of that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, the, their rules are just the same. They've always been that. Um, and of course, even uh, Wizards of the Coast is realizing this. With Fourth Edition D and D, there's a virtual tabletop that they're going to unleash on the uh, public, where they'll have a map and they'll show your little guys, and you can move them, take your turns, do all the dice rolling with voice chat and all this other stuff. Have you heard about that? Oh yeah, no, I'm actually really excited about Fourth Edition. Yeah, um, because they're making all of these interesting changes, and because I feel like I'll finally catch up. I started on Palladium. Yeah. So I started with uh, THG Ninja Turtles. That was oh, the first time I ever played. Kidding. I started with that too. That was... Really? I thought I was the only one. Me and my brother, we, we started playing, you know, like, oh, Mutant Bat with Spikes or whatever. And then, you know, everybody, everybody, everybody I talked to started with Dungeons & Dragons. Everybody. And Dungeons & Dragons is a lot like the Fireball move in the old Street Fighter 2. Yeah. If you didn't master that back then, you're not doing it now. Um, so I never really picked up on how Thacko works, and I, you know, I am committing cardinal sin of, of gaming now, telling you that I don't get Dungeons & Dragons, I can't run Dungeons & Dragons. I tried to run Dungeons & Dragons once, I, I somehow sent the entire party up against the Lich at like third level, and wiped out the whole room, and everybody was mad at me, and I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing! This is in my game! Right, right. So, and, and you're just not, that's... You know, that's the crucial sin. You're not supposed to not know D and D. Everybody knows D and D. Right. So I'm hoping that with Fourth Edition, maybe I can run some D and D because I, I I love the idea, but I just can't run it. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think yeah. they're really uh, streamlining it. I think they're taking a lot of the things from various uh, third ed supplements that work well. Like, um, for example, there's Iron Heroes, which is a uh, low magic setting, which was very cinematic. All the char- none of the characters have magic. No, that was a, uh, it's like a real, um, uh, like a, a very steampunk thing, right? No, Iron Heroes is the, the Conan, uh, sword. Oh, sword, I'm thinking sword. of something else. It's a stunting, um, like. This guy a, I knew in Queens just had this, this huge boner for this, uh, steampunk. Oh, can I say boner? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have profanity. Oh. Uh, 
<laughs> I'm not sure. I don't want to get you guys banned or anything. Yeah, he just he was in love with the steampunk thing, and he's like, I need you to come in here, and and, and it was a neutral ground. He's like, oh, it's amazing, and you got to come and play and try it, and it's oh my god, it's the best thing ever. And uh, at the time, I just didn't have any time to go and try it out. I felt really bad because I didn't want the guy to think I was blowing him off. It's just like I couldn't do it. Uh, but I, I I still see the I don't know, the, the cover of it. I can't remember the name of it. Mm. Uh, um, I mean, there have been a couple of D20 uh, steampunk supplements. Well, there's been D20 everything. Yeah. I think I can run my D20 sandwich game. Yeah. Uh, I, I've uh, seen this. I think, I think there's a market for that. I've think. I, I, I I've seen the Provolone supplement. <laughs> In the news uh, box. Yeah. Um, God, I'm not funny. Okay. Uh, that was. But in Iron Heroes, one of the things they did that I think Fourth Ed is going to do is they're going to make the battlefield part of instead of the standard Third Ed cliche is that the characters stand next to each other, just whacking away at their hit points until one of them falls over and no one moves. It's a very static, you know, kind of like a Final Fantasy video game. Everyone just stands right. still and takes turns. And Iron Heroes made the battlefield more dynamic where they made a point of saying you can do these things you can grab the chandelier and swing over and knock the back that is awesome yeah. i am all about that i'll tell you the first video game first video christ i'm really getting in trouble now the first uh D game i played the first yeah. serious D game i played was in college hmm. which is like saying i'm i'm 50 and I lost my virginity yesterday. Um, so my first D&D game was in college and the whole, you know, you get this many attack for rounds thing. I never got the hang of it. So I remember getting into these arguments with my GM where I'd say, okay, uh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to see the first giant. I'm going to use my bull whip and get it around his neck. I'm going to swing around him and I'm going to throw an ax at the guy behind him. And then I'm going to pull him down with the bull whip and stick my knife in his head. And he goes, you've got like two attacks. And I'm like, all right, well, uh, the first thing will be that whole swinging around thing, and the second attack will be the knife in the head. And I just didn't get it. So, right. uh, you know, it was always yeah, a problem. And they really, you know, tried to make it more dynamic, where the characters have a lot of conscious decisions they have to make instead of just all attack, you know, guy A or guy B. Or, um, And I think it'll be very interesting to see how that turns out. Uh, they've really focused on making things, what they say, the, the, the catchphrase, I guess, is cinematic. Where, that sounds fantastic. Uh, I, I'd love that. Yeah, I really like running games where I, you know, my players will tell you that you know, in, in the games that I run, like the dumber the idea, the more insane and over the top and crazy it is, the more likely I'm going to let it work. You know, you have to really screw up your roles to to not do it, and sometimes I'll even just say, "No, that just works. I don't care." Uh, I love doing car chases like that because you can get into all kinds of crazy. Well, I'm going to jump off the back of the motorcycle and then I'm going to throw the boat Volkswagen at his head. And, you know, it's stupid and insane. But I'm like, yeah, that'll probably work. Yeah, yeah. And what's your strength? A four? Sure, why not? <laughs> um, that, yeah. And, um, of course, that doesn't work for every type of game. I mean, in Call of Cthulhu, that would uh, get your character killed pretty quickly. But... Uh, <laughs> Well, it depends uh, what you're playing. Yeah, that's true. If you're Cthulhu, throwing a Volkswagen, not a big deal. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I guess if you're Cthulhu, you've got a bigger strength than four. Yeah. yeah. But the poor investigators, man, they're you know they they try a car chase, they're you know they're going to get killed with you know ten hit points or whatever. That's true. Yes. Um, of course, in Call of Cthulhu, your character's pretty much going to die anyways, or go insane. Yeah, it was it was the thing, and that was the part I never got with uh, with, with between Call of Cthulhu and Wraith was, you know, I always thought that Call of Cthulhu was the most bleak game ever because Cthulhu always wins. Right. 
And then people be like, I don't want to play Wraith. It's it's depressing. Yeah. We're playing Call of Cthulhu. You've already lost, buddy. Yeah. What do you think is going to happen? Uh, uh, you're going to arm wrestle Cthulhu? No, that's not happening. Yeah. One of my uh, the favorite supplements for Call of Cthulhu is Delta Green, uh, you know, which is the modern-day conspiracy uh, supplement for it. Uh, and the basic thing, their, their mantra is, you know, is, you can only delay the inevitable, and you're going to sacrifice everything for it. You're going to give up your marriage. You're going to give up your life. You're going to go crazy. You're going to die alone and forgotten, you know, eaten by a monster or something. And you're only delaying what's going to eventually happen no matter what. And uh, they just beat that into your head in the game. And it's a great game. But Yeah, no, I, I, I play stuff like that, and it's fun, and I never understand why. <laughs> my, my character is an alcoholic with no arms now and why am I enjoying this I don't get it but it is fun I, I'll, I'll definitely give it that alright um, well uh, it's been a great uh, uh, conversation with you Sean and uh, we'll have you back sometime talk about some of your other projects and uh, do you have any yeah. last things you'd like to talk to uh, uh, say before we go um I'm going to think of something like, you know, five minutes from now, and be like, oh, can you put that thing back on? You know, you can say something and sound cool. Maybe well, people will uh, like me. Just, uh, no, I got nothing. Okay, well, uh, yeah, just write it down. We'll have it for the next interview. So, <laughs> uh, sounds good. All right, this has been Ross Payton for RPPR, and uh, we'll uh, talk to you next time. Sounds good. All right, thanks. All right, take care. Bye.